good special educators and, and good administrators in schools across the country, they need a roadmap and, and a simple roadmap. We know that there certainly is another parallel curriculum that's so, so important that it cannot only be just kind of neglected. It, it should maybe perhaps be prioritized. From the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas, this is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. A few years ago, Paul Olson, who is the superintendent at North Dakota Vision Services slash School for the Blind, approached myself and Janie Bloom about the creation of a document. From that idea was born a Bill of Rights for all children with visual impairment and their families. To explain this resource and the purpose it serves, we invited Paul and his exceptional accent onto our show. I'm a North Dakotan who set out to uh, have a kind of a standard career in education and somehow or another uh, found my way to the North Coast School for the Blind. And one of the first things that I observed here, I was working as a teacher's aide that first year, but there was the opportunity to observe a mobility instructor at work and fell in love with that whole idea of went off to graduate school and came back and worked for most of my career here, 20 plus, uh, maybe nearly, yeah, over 20 years primarily as an orientation and mobility instructor, but also dual certified as a, a teacher of the visually impaired. So I've been superintendent since 2013, uh, which is an awesome gig here in North Dakota. We have a great state with, you know, we're small population wise, but we have a network of very good public school teachers of the visually impaired uh, as well as our program, which is all short-term programming. The residential program changed in the early 90s just because of our size, and we became an outreach service primarily working with all the school districts across the state. Um, but so in that capacity, we, are, we still were a part of the Council of Schools and Services of, for the Blind and proudly a member of Cosby. We stay very much involved with AER nationally. Uh, we're a state that believes in best practices, et cetera. We're a very progressive group of vision professionals here. But like most states, uh, we have gaps. My interest in, in having a tool like the Bill of Rights for all children who are visually impaired and their families was because we really, we had all kinds of wonderful materials we could bring to IEP meetings uh, and show parents, but it was almost overloading. And I had become aware of the Bill of Rights for Students Who Are Deaf and Hard of Hearing a few years ago. I hadn't really looked at it until I, I sought it out. But my background is, is I'm, I'm a mobility instructor, really, uh, who is masquerading as an administrator now <laughs> and, and have a lot of fun doing both. <laughs> Uh, that that's really me in a nutshell. I started to get ahead of myself a little bit, but you know, there's gaps everywhere we go. And yeah. the large part of it is because with visual impairment and blindness being such a low incidence population, teams, good special educators and, and good administrators in schools across the country, they need a roadmap and, and a simple roadmap. There's a lot of great materials out there, but 
you know, it's it's hard to discern what the priorities are. And when our national education system uh, is certainly needs to prioritize the academics, um, we know that there certainly is another parallel curriculum that's so, so important that it cannot only be just kind of neglected. It, it should maybe perhaps be prioritized. But the title was important to me that it was a Bill of Rights for all children with visual impairment, which would include blindness, and their families. Because I think, and I know this is very much the case with you, we believe that the families should be in the driver's seat and have all the information available to them that they can use uh, both to be well-informed, but also to be good advocates. No, I think that was such a critical piece because I think by adding families to the title, it really highlighted that we are looking at the child and their entire life and the people that are there with them. And sometimes I think as educators, you just get busy in the day to day and you don't always reach out to the families as much. So I'm really glad that that is a critical component of this document. So what I was really happy to see what happened as this evolved was the first document being, you know, having some language which sounded kind of official, some of it from special education law, some of it, uh, you know, added on just some, some additional information that I think most professionals would agree is important. But when we realize that it's a tool for families, I think most families could, you know, look at that document in itself with 10 rights on it and have a lot of learning in it in itself. Well, what does this mean? What does this mean for my child? But it's a little wordy. And then so what was really nice, what was kind of an offshoot, which I think is an even better resource for parents or any caregivers that are interested, are the the simplified Bill of Rights that you penned. (laughs) Yeah, the Cliff Notes version. The parent needs a little bit of encouragement to say, yes, I can speak up. And if I find out more about why Braille is important or assistive technology or orientation and mobility, I'm hoping that... If this document doesn't in itself, you know, emphasize why those things are important, that it'll be the catalyst to have people dig in and research it. But it is a single document that you can go to and say, you know, this everyone, all these people say this is important. AER says this is important. Well, they're they're a pretty reputable group of pretty reputable organization, as are 50 organizations that belong to the Council of Schools and Services for the Blind. They've endorsed this Bill of Rights. Hmm. It must be something that carries some weight. So, And I, I think that's the reason we created this document too, right, was the fact that it provides all the information in one place. It doesn't ask families to know what it all means, but it right. it's a point of reference that's a jumping off point for a bigger conversation. You bet. And where I, one of the rights is just a teacher, a mobility instructor, an administrator in our field could also sit down and walk through the Bill of Rights with parents who might have legitimate questions about, well, what does this mean? Well, in fact, what is the expanded core curriculum? I've never heard of this before. My child's in first grade. I've never heard about an expanded core curriculum. There's the opportunity to start talking about it. Agreed. All right. Well, let's go through and read these so we we get them documented. (laughs) All right. So I'll read the first one very quickly, and then then you're going to do the concise version. All right. That sounds good. All right. Number one, children with all levels of visual impairment, including those with multiple disabilities and who are deafblind, have the right to early intervention instruction, 
provided by highly trained and qualified teachers of the visually impaired and certified orientation and mobility specialists, and that it be timely, it be ambitious, and results in the highest possible achievement. When we have a two or three-year-old, we're not just playing around and checking on them and we're talking about concepts. No, they, they need the intervention if they have a severe visual impairment. My summary of this was just that, you know, my child deserves easy access to the right professionals expecting him to succeed. Like, simple as that, mm-hmm. which I think every child should have in education. You bet. Now, the right professional, they might need some other folks that are in special ed, like an OT or a PT involved, and for very good reasons. But when it's travel and mobility instruction for a child who is blind, it needs to be a certified orientation mobility instructor. For a child who we're talking about early literacy, it needs to be someone who is well-versed in what it means to be learning Braille for for early literacy. Um, So it is the right professional, as you said. Number two is children with a visual impairment have the right to a functional vision evaluation and a learning media assessment by highly trained and qualified teachers of students with visual impairment to determine the appropriate services following the initial clinical eye exam. So yes, you need eye doctors involved, ophthalmologists, optometrists, et cetera, critical. But what should follow? is the functional vision eval, because that eye doctor isn't always going to be able to know what that child needs in a classroom. That's that's the point with number two. Well, and I think, you know, as I said, too, it's um, you can't base an education plan without a good evaluation. So this is how you get services your child needs based on their specific needs is through really good assessments. That's right. Number three. Parents and guardians of children with visual impairment have the right to assistance in interpreting the educational implications of that diagnosed visual impairment. And for that to be provided by highly trained and qualified teachers, we're getting, you know, we restate some of the things over and over again because it isn't always the case. There is a shortage of some of these professionals. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in a rural district in a, you know, a state where there's few of those people. You should not ignore the fact that you need to seek out professionals with training in blindness. So, yeah. And then so that parent who is reading a medical diagnosis that is kind of confusing. Yeah, they should have the right to be able to talk to people who are knowledgeable of it, including there's a couple consumer advocacy groups out there who are very valuable. The National Federation of the Blind and the American Council of the Blind. Those folks can be very helpful in giving parents information about what's appropriate now and in the future for their child. Yeah, I really like this one because it, it really just talks about not just that you need information, but you need it from people that can truly explain it to you and understand the long-term implications and needs of our kids. That's right. You don't just put fingers on Braille and start running them along the little dots. Right. It just all comes magically. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? There, there, there is a science to it. Yeah. Number four, as required by the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And this one actually is pretty well provided for. It maybe didn't need to be put in, but it is such a strong, important piece that's already yeah. in IDEA mm-hmm. that, you know, that the team must provide for instruction in Braille and the use of Braille in the curriculum, unless the IEP team determines that after an evaluation of the child's reading and writing skills and needs and appropriate reading and writing media, that the need for Braille instruction is, is not needed. It, you know, you, the assumption for students with you know, moderate to severe visual impairment 
and I'm just going to leave it in, in general. Yeah. You should always be looking at with the, the learning media assessment, what makes sense for this individual child? There's no right or wrong, black and white. Kids with this type of vision get Braille and these types of kids with, with a different vision don't need Braille. No, it has to be individualized every time with the appropriate assessment. Yep. And I, I think the thing that's often forgotten is that when a child is qualified as visually impaired, you know, the default is Braille, unless you yes. do an assessment that determines otherwise. And so that's, this is an important one, I think, because it's just that reminder that the default is Braille. <laughs> and so every exactly. kid with visual impairment deserves Braille instruction, unless the team decides through assessment that it's not warranted. And speaking to the choir, but so many students with low vision can ultimately benefit from Braille, even if they can read large print, because the reading rate in in many instances can be greater ultimately Mm -hmm. as the reading demand increases as they get older. So that's a little nuance with this, but that's what we've learned over the years. It is not just for students who are totally blind. Right. Number five, children and families have the right to be fully informed about, again, the expanded core curriculum, ECC. And um, the unique skills that students with visual impairment need, it includes what is called compensatory skills. has a few things wrapped into it. Orientation and mobility, that's travel skills. We all know what social interaction skills are. And again, well, all kids need that. But you know what? If kids that are blind can't see other kids' facial expressions or gestures or those types of things, sometimes we need to help them learn those things. Independent living skills, we all need that. We need to take care of ourselves, clean and do clothing management and and you name it. Rec leisure skills, every child needs to move and do things that are enjoyable. Career education, ultimately, and assistive technology. Sensory efficiency skills could be learning how to use both their remaining vision or their, their touch skills or their hearing more effectively, because those are all methods uh, or input methods for learning. The last one in the expanded core curriculum, again, you could say this is something that every child should have, but is so important, is self-determination. And this would be a good example of a parent says, well, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm not going to go into it today. But that was one that was added after the original uh, expanded core curriculum was developed because it is such an important feature in being successful. Well, and this is great because we still know a lot of families don't know what the expanded core curriculum is, and it's just partially it's educational jargon along with all the other stuff they hear. And so Mm -hmm. it's really important. I think this is pulled out as the children and families need to be informed and it needs to be emphasized so they understand what instruction is available and necessary for their students. So it's such a, it's such so important. Yeah. Our public school counterparts, you know, there is all kinds of graduation requirements and state requires standards. And those are all so important. And we try to align to those. But, you know, again, there is in many years of experience, it has been determined that the expanded core curriculum really is of equal value. I'll put there's no sense in fighting of which is greater or lesser. Let's just say they're of equal value, which means they're pretty important. Yeah. The next one is children have the right to assessment and instruction in school and in their communities in every area of the expanded core curriculum that is deemed appropriate by the educational team and includes the parents and guardians as the primary decision makers and includes the student when appropriate. The expanded core curriculum is equal in importance 
to the standard academic curriculum and will not be overlooked. We can't always put all areas, every single thing in an IEP in every year, but all of those areas are important to discuss. And as you look ahead for a child, again, maybe one year there's a lot of orientation mobility instruction and, and the next year there's a little bit less because it's hard to get all of those things in to a school day. But the point being is that the parents and the children, the students themselves should be involved in making their plan. And going back to the previous right, when the parents are informed, they can help support the prioritization of which one of these things is the most important to help them really be the leaders on the educational team. It's our job as educators to make sure they know what the choices are and the options and and the needs of our kids. So that goes without saying, I think. You bet. And it's not that we're, you know, teams have debates and don't, and it's messy sometimes and they don't always agree. And, but, you know, I think, you know, that that parent perspective is still so, so important because as we found, there is no one recipe to success. Yeah. There's many ways to get there. True. Number seven, children have the right to receive school materials that are accessible in the preferred format. And at the same time as their cited peers, children have an absolute right to testing procedures and instruments that are fair and accessible and take into consideration the results of the functional vision eval. Because too many in this field have just known that the kids have been disadvantaged at tests. And it's oftentimes if they take a test and they have lower performance, there'll be a notation made that, you know, there were some disadvantages. If it's a test that's highly laden with visual words, no duh, it's probably going to result in a poor score. You know, and then just the comment made about having materials on time. In my 30 years, oh my goodness, I'm getting all 30 years doing this plus, I've seen great improvement. We get so many of our materials to the American Printing House for the Blind, textbooks and other things. Um, There's lots of other producers of Braille and, you know, every state, every school has to be very diligent and and work hard at getting materials on time for students. It's not fair if they get a math book four weeks late into the school year. Does it still happen? Yes, in spite of good efforts. But we should never as a team accept that as status quo. Never. Yeah. Never. That one's a huge one. Well, and it continues to be tough because, you know, as educators and being a, a previous teacher myself, like like you, we know that it's hard to plan ahead. <laughs> like there are days when you oh, make boy. up lesson plans on the fly. And yes. I think we just have to keep striving for our students to make sure that we are planning far enough ahead that we can get them the documents the same day their peers get it. And we all hate to see a handout being passed around a classroom and and as an itinerant watching our student not get it and being told, well, you can just work on something else until we can figure this Uh out, you know. How how demoralizing is that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Some kids might handle it well, but I think that sets up well, I am separate. Yeah. I'm different. I'm not as important for yep. someone to have. Yes, but schools are a very fast-paced place. There's always going to be some reality that there might be some delay. Number eight is the right of children and families for a full range of educational placement settings to be discussed at the IEP meeting. So most states do have uh, some type of a specialized school, not all, but most states have a public or private specialized school for students with a visual impairment. And also sometimes they're a dual school. On campus, they might have deaf and hard of hearing students as well. Now that said, people have strong feelings about 
well, I would never want my child to have to go 100 miles or 300 miles and be away from me in a residential program. I understand that. Yeah. And, and we have some amazing public school programs around the country. But so many of the things that go into making that decision at a given time are, what are the child's needs right now? And in some cases, the least restrictive environment is a residential program where that child can be immersed in all kinds of opportunities that they might not have provided to them in their local school. And what is really cool, this really cool, cool, cool guy that used to be a predecessor at the Texas School for the Blind, <laughs> Phil Hatlin, mm-hmm. I remember him saying, you know, kids who go to a residential school or a specialized school, they don't have to go there forever and graduate and be entirely separate. They what if they go there for a year or two and, and build these amazing skills and bring them back to their school and have success there? Yeah. That's happening more and more. And, and it should be different for each kid. It shouldn't be, well, all kids should go for two years or they should go for six years or 12 years. It's got to be individualized in every case. But it's got to start with the team being open-minded and actually talking about a placement. Because sometimes... In IEPs in some states, there w- it'll be brushed over or, or not mentioned at all. And I think that's unfortunate. There could be other placement options as well, you know, different than a residential school. Yeah, I was just going to add that when you go into a, an IEP meeting and you don't bring up all the placement options, you're making a decision without the team, essentially. Right. In many cases, I mean, a very small percentage of kids in Texas attend school uh, full-time right. on our campus. Yeah. So yeah. most of the time, the answer is going to be, these are the options. Okay, no, that's not a good fit. But the fact it needs to be part of the conversation so that families know what resources are available to their child. You bet. Okay. Uh, All children with number nine with a visual impairment have the right to teams that enthusiastically assist them in preparing for transition to independence and adulthood. We should all be enthusiastic, being cheerleaders and pushing kids to do their best. Yeah. And with with looking at adulthood as what's going to serve them best. We kind of would like you to live uh, and be uh, self-dependent and Mm -hmm. to, to a high degree. Uh, maybe have a job and pay taxes and uh, contribute to your community. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. this speaks to my new favorite word that we've all used for a long time, but I seem to use it all the time right now is empowering students, you know, yeah. and that's that speaks to me enthusiastic matches empowering, you know, it's mm-hmm. like we're not just going to do our best and hope you're fine. Like we are as excited as our kids are about gaining skills and independence to lead their own future. So I like that one. I like the word enthusiastic too, because it's maybe only happened a couple, three times over the years where I was at an IEP where it seemed like there was a big black cloud hanging over the table and people were just like, Oh, looking at their watches and going, you know, I've got something I got to get to it. It's like, hold on a minute. This whole next year could be a really critical time for this child. We're not just going through the motions. Uh, yeah, we all have our stories. Most of them are good. Occasionally, the ones that are not so good, we can still laugh about. There was a Mrs. Emily Coleman who really added number 10. When we were working on it, she added this number 10. And I thought, this is amazing. You read number 10. Okay, I'll read number 10 because it's, you know, I keep talking about how it's my favorite. (laughs) So um, children with visual impairment, including those with multiple disabilities and deafblindness, 
have the right to be perceived and treated as equal, active, and contributing members of their communities, classrooms, and schools. And as with all children, their engagement through belonging increases the collective value of each setting within which they participate. I like that one because, you know, my my Cliff Notes version was that our kids just deserve to be kids and um, everybody needs to understand that they add value to our lives and the lives of people around them and that, you know, they're never going to have that sense of belonging to a community, to a place of employment, to a school, unless they can contribute. And it goes back to number nine and just empowering them to Mm -hmm. gain their independence in whatever way they can. Yeah, there should be a high expectation and, and that's what will lead to if the staff and the family and their, the, oh, whoever is supporting that student on their team perceives them, it spills over into society yeah. in general and maybe to an employer. Anyway, I love that one. Well, let me tell you again, I, I was up one evening kind of wringing my hands about just a couple situations. They weren't awful, but where I, again, thought the parents really just don't have, like we'd given parents, so there's, there's parental uh, rights. There's safeguard materials parents are given that are rather generic. And, you know, parents, if they read through them and they, they will they will understand some of the procedural things that are important in the planning of the education of their child. But when it comes to a lot of the terminology that we kind of specialize in, there's a lot of jargon. And even in even this, this document, there's some jargon. But I thought, what do we all need? You need a quick reference. You know, and it doesn't have to be perfect. It's a conversation piece. And that's why there was a little criticism when it first came out about maybe we didn't seek as much a broad perspective. And I don't care if there's a few things in here that are debatable. That's perfectly fine. The point is we want to have the conversations. You know, we're all supposed to get our IEP materials before the meeting. So when families look through it and they talk to the TVI, they can talk about these points. And if there's questions of something that's missed, then the TVI has a chance to go back to the rest of the educational team and use this document as a tool, as a point of conversation to help, you know, make sure that the child has access to an appropriate education. It's all about figuring it out year to year. What's our best plan? Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. Thanks again to Paul and Jamie for their work on this document and for allowing me to contribute. There are many resources available to families and professionals, but I have a soft spot in my heart for this one. I believe it contains a roadmap that will lead our children and or students to success. From TSBBI Outreach and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.